0: It was really awesome, and we got to pray for him. We talked to him for about an hour. He was just kind of telling us about his life and about like his half acre of land that he owned, and he was very proud of the things that he had done with the land. Um, he gave us soda. It was really cool. It was a, it was a really cool time. Um, that's not really an intro, but that's the only intro I have. So uh <laughs> we're gonna today. I'm gonna really focus on the passages that are happening in Luke 19 through 21 or 22. Um, yeah, Luke 19 through 21. So you guys can open your Bibles if you want to, but I'm not going to have scripture up there. I'm just going to kind of give a synopsis of what is happening so we can really dive in and understand what's going on between when Palm Sunday happens and then when Jesus is betrayed. So in Luke 19, 28 through 40, that's Obviously centered around Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So this all starts on the Mount of Olives. It's a place called the Mount of Olives. And this place ends up being a very usual place for Jesus to go off and pray. But just to kind of paint the picture of this passage, there were people that were so ecstatic that Jesus was that this was happening. Like Jesus and his disciples, um, they were all at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus had his disciples go and get him a random donkey from either the town of Bethphage or Bethany. The, the scriptures don't really make that too clear. But Jesus told them that this donkey would be tied up and that it had never been ridden before. So it was a totally pure, never ridden by any one donkey. And there's a lot of significance in having Jesus ride on this donkey that's never been ridden because it's a donkey that's never been tainted by a human before, which is very interesting. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, and crowds of people are following him, just throwing their garments down in the streets for him to ride across, and they're singing all of these praises to him. They're calling him the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a pretty celebratory time for people. Like, they are literally recognizing and stating that he is the king, but things are about to get super shady. So in Luke 20... Jesus goes through a lot of questioning from religious leaders and priests who demand to know where his authority is coming from. And then also in Luke 20, Jesus is telling this parable about evil farmers who were leased land from a man who had moved away for a few years. And when the grapes were ready to be harvested, the man sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop since he essentially still owned that land but was just leasing it to people. When the servant got there to collect his share of the crop, The farmers who were leasing the land from the owner beat up the servant and sent him back with nothing. So the man tried again. He sent his other servant, but the farmers beat him up and also sent him back with nothing. So the man decided that he would send his son to collect the harvest because he thought the farmers would surely respect the son of the man who was leasing this land to them. When the son got there, the farmers killed him because they thought that it meant that they would officially get the land for themselves. Jesus told the people listening to this parable that the owner of the vineyard, he came back and he killed the evil farmers, and then he leased the vineyard to others. The religious leaders and the leading priests who were listening to this parable at the time realized that Jesus was referring to them as the evil farmers, and that was enough for them to want to arrest him on the spot in that moment, but they were kind of scared of how the people around him would react and decided to hold off. But, like, what a powerful parable. If you have time, go through and read that parable and kind of see how it correlates with Jesus and God and probably ourselves. So Jesus continues to answer questions from religious leaders that were meant to trap him throughout Luke 20, like if they should still keep paying taxes, which Jesus says that they should give to Caesar's. What is Caesar's? Give to God's. What is God's? Or if two people who are married die, will they still be married in heaven? Which Jesus says that marriage is just for people on earth and that marriage doesn't exist. One will be with him forever one day. This is kind of confusing for people for us. It's kind of confusing for us, to be honest. So I want to pause on this really quickly to explain what Jesus means when he talks about marriages not existing when we're all with him in the kingdom. So marriage is a God-ordained idea. Other people have like adopted it as their own. other religions have kind of adopted it as their own. Other cultures do it in their own way. Um, but it's been tainted and it's been misused and violated. But marriage, the idea of marriage, was actually a God-ordained idea that's supposed to be incredibly holy. So marriage, it's not about two people who love each other coming together to spend their lives together. I mean, that's that's a part of it, but it's not all that what marriage is. We believe that's what it's all about because that's what we've been told but it's so much more. Marriage is literally a spiritual representation of Jesus coming for his bride, the church. It is a spiritual representation of us being fully united with Jesus as one here on earth. It's a union between two people for life forever. Marriage is literally defined in the Bible as a holy covenant before God in Malachi 2:14. When we're with Jesus, marriage is going to be obsolete because Jesus will have come for his bride in full. So how beautiful is that? Like how beautiful that God gives us a taste of what that's like here on earth through marriage. That's the coolest thing. As we move along, though, through this whole scripture thing, uh, we see in chapter 21 that Jesus observes rich people dropping money into the collection box at the temple. And then he sees a poor widow give two small coins. When Jesus sees this, he tells everyone there in that moment in verse 3 that this woman gave more than anyone else. That even though she's poor, she gave everything she has. When I read this, I was pretty convicted. I want Jesus to say that about me. I want him to say that I gave everything I had. But can I say that if I don't tithe? Can I say that if I'm not financially funding things that are furthering his kingdom? So we're moving on to chapter 22, and I want to rest in this chapter for a few minutes because the entire chapter really wrecked me. I hadn't read through this passage of Scripture since I um, first really began a relationship with Jesus, which was about two years ago. So this was the first time I really read through this with new lenses, and I was, I was pretty wrecked. I th- this is the chapter where Satan literally enters into Judas, it says, In verse 3, and Judas betrays Jesus to the religious leaders in exchange for money. In exchange for money. One of the most fleeting, and consistent things he betrays Jesus for. So a guy who's been walking with Jesus, who was one of his 12 disciples, who got a front row seat to some of the wisest teachings and most miraculous moments, betrayed Jesus for money. It's tempting, it's real tempting to think that we would never do such a thing. Especially if we got to spend that amount of personal one-on-one discipleship with Jesus. But the reality is that you and I aren't really far off from Judas. And that reality stings. But I'll come back to that. So Judas agrees to betray Jesus to these religious leaders. They're making a deal. Um, and then Jesus and his disciples are preparing the Passover meal. Or as it's titled in Luke 22, the Last Supper. So they're all sitting together at the table. And Jesus says in verse 15... I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Do we understand the gravity of communion? In verse 17, it says that Jesus took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He told those around the table to share this wine with each other because he will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Then Jesus took bread and he broke it into pieces. He gave pieces to his disciples and said to them, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So they do this and then they eat dinner together. And this is what I didn't realize. So Jesus takes a cup of wine at the beginning then he breaks bread, and then he takes a cup of wine again after dinner, and in verse 20 said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Man, like what a holy moment. What a sacred, still, holy moment. And the disciples had no freaking clue what was happening at the, they were, they were probably like why is this guy talking about like his blood they were just totally clueless but do we because we know what we know do we understand the gravity of communion when we take it during this supper Jesus tells his disciples that one of them at this table was going to betray him and obviously, everyone was looking at each other like, is it going to be you? now, man, it's not going to be me. It even says in verse 23 that they were asking each other which of them would ever do such a thing. It blew their minds that someone among their 12, someone who they've done life with for a while now, would betray Jesus. Then in verses 31 through 38, Jesus tells Peter, another one of the 12 disciples, that Peter is going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. And Peter was adamant that this wouldn't happen. He's saying, I'll give up my life for you. I will follow you anywhere, Jesus. That's not true. It's not going to be me. He talks about how he would even go to prison for Jesus. And keep in mind that all of this is happening on the same evening. Like Jesus is having quite an evening delivering this news to people. So after supper, Jesus and his disciples go up to the Mount of Olives, right, which is where we started. Very interesting. And this is the place – Yeah, this is a place where he was worshipped by crowds, where he was called king by those who didn't even know who he was. And while here, Jesus tells his disciples to pray that they wouldn't give in to temptation. So Jesus walks, what the Bible literally says, is a stone's throw away. So I'm imagining this is not even far at all. And this is where we read that he asks God to intervene, to take this cup of suffering away from him, yet desires for God's will to be done and not his. And when Jesus walks back over to the disciples, he sees that they're sleeping And uh, I I don't know, I was just like, man, I get that it's been probably a long day for you guys, but he asked you to do one thing, just to stay awake and pray, and this, you know, you guys fall asleep. But shortly after the whole falling asleep thing that happens on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people, and Judas comes up to him, kisses him, and hands him over to the officers of the temple guard. Right after this, literally right after this happens, Peter followed where the guards were taking Jesus, kind of at a distance to sort of give some space. And it says in Luke 22:54 54, that he stopped to just kind of hang out at a fire that some people had been kindling. And it's here at this fire that Peter denies he knows who Jesus is three times when asked by the people who were sitting around the fire. And then he hears the rooster crow. Absolute devastation takes over Peter when he hears this rooster crow. At this point in the story, everything has really gone to crap. It started off so good. People were praising Jesus. They were calling him king. His disciples were passionate about following him. They're soaking up every word he's been saying to them. Peter even says that he would give up his life for Jesus. But then it gets hard. It gets really hard. Jesus is questioned and tested by high leaders, which probably made the disciples feel kind of on high alert. The disciples are completely clueless as to what Jesus is talking about at the Last Supper, probably because it's easier to not try and understand. Judas betrays Jesus in exchange for money because money promises an easier life than the one he signed up for. And Peter denies knowing Jesus because it's easier than admitting that he knows him. Easy. If we're honest, we want an easy life. I know I want an easy life. I was ready to throw in the towel these past two weeks. I was over this. I was convinced that I was never supposed to speak or preach again, that I wasn't equipped or educated enough to do this, that I was just some phony up here with no purpose. I had a text totally crafted and ready to go to Derek on Thursday morning to tell him that he needed to prepare this message, because I couldn't. I was so done with this calling, I was done with this life, I was ready to walk away. You know how easy it looks to walk away from Jesus? If you don't know, then I would challenge the depth of your relationship with Jesus. If you've never gotten to a period of your relationship with Jesus where you've wanted to walk away for an easier life, how deep are you really going with him? A surface-level relationship with Jesus is easy. We don't feel conviction in this relationship. We don't really have to obey anything. We don't really hear from him. We aren't asked to give up anything. We're just floating along life, believing that Jesus exists, but not really believing that he transforms lives. But when you have a taste of waiting in deep waters with Jesus, something happens that makes you never want to turn back again. I will say yes to Jesus for the rest of my life. And I know that I'll have to be reminded why I said yes. Derek had to remind me Thursday night why I said yes. In the heart, we have to be reminded why we said yes to Jesus. That's why community is so vital. That's why, these small, that's why we push small groups. That's why we, we believe in the power of small groups because we need each other. I have yet to regret a time. When I've said yes to things he's told me to do or jobs he's told me to leave or things he's told me to give up or relationships he's told me to enter into or walk away from. I've yet to regret any of it. If an easy life is what you're after, Jesus isn't it. Sure, people do it. People have surface level relationships with Jesus every day. It's a very common thing. I I used to be one of those people. But they don't really know him And Jesus doesn't really know who they are. Remember the passage about being lukewarm. It's in Revelation 3, 15 through 16. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you have a surface level relationship with Jesus, you are lukewarm. Jesus will spit you out. He's going to ask you to give up things that you've held on to for years. He'll ask you to move to a city you swore you'd never go to. Maybe he'll ask you to sell everything you have to have a simpler life. Truly following Jesus requires sacrifices of your own every day. It is the hardest decision I've ever made. I know what it's cost me, but I also know what it's worth. Are you hot or cold? Are you in or are you out? That's really what the question comes down to. Are you in or are you out? If you're in, you're all in. I don't have time for lukewarm Christianity or surface-level relationships with Jesus. I just don't have time. I'm doing kingdom stuff with kingdom-minded people. And if you're not all in, I don't have time to invest in you because I'm all in. If you've been sitting on the edge for years now in a surface-level relationship with Jesus... I want to challenge you to take that leap forward. If you ask anyone in this room about the cost of following Jesus, they'll tell you that it cost them everything. Absolutely, they'll tell you that it cost them everything. But if you ask them what they've gained from it, I can guarantee they'll say it was beyond worth everything it cost. I want to invite the worship team back up. If that is you, this I also I also want to create, yeah, screw this. I want to create a um, I want to create a space for vulnerability and honesty because I believe in that and I believe that it transforms lives. I've seen it transform my own life and being vulnerable. If that's you this morning, if like you've just been sitting in a surface level relationship with Jesus for a really long time and you're ready to go deeper with him, I want you to just raise your hand. Yeah, God bless you, man. God bless you. God bless you. If you want a newness of life, <laughs> He promises that. You know, there's nothing more than He wants them for you to be all in for the rest of your life. He has so much good things for you. everything you've ever had. And there will be times when you want to walk away. But I promise you that you will never regret saying yes. So I don't know really where a space to pray is, but I'm going to say it's up here. Um, If I could just have some people who are willing to pray for people come up. And if you raised your hand, please come up and get prayer. If you didn't raise your hand, come up and get prayer. Uh, If you just have something else on your heart that you want prayer for, come up and get prayer. (laughs) And as this uh, worship song just happens, we're going to pray for people. um, And then we'll come up and close in prayer. Worthy of every song.